Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara. I'm the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG. And on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, I'm delighted to be joined by Ramki Sundaram. Ramki is the CEO of Airborne Capital. He's joining us for the purposes of our Aviation Leaders Report. I should say we're recording this in the second week of December. Uh, Ramki, thanks as always for joining us. Great to get your insights. Before we get into maybe the meat of the questions, do you want to tell our watchers a little bit about Airborne Capital? Sure, sure. At the outset, thanks very much for inviting me to join this conversation. Uh, as always, I think uh, uh, around this year, end of year, is a very good time to kind of think through as to what's, what's happened over the year uh, and, uh, and frame some of the thought process for next year. So I, I really look forward to these conversations. Uh, in terms of airborne capital itself, we, uh, we now come up to about being five years old and uh, we see us as a specialist asset manager and a trusted advisor for many of the airlines. Um, in the asset management part of a business, we, uh, we manage about just under 60 aircraft, about two, two to 2.5 billion of assets. Uh, and we do that across various investors. Our main investor focus areas are um, uh, United States and Japan, uh, where we have both passive and active investors for whom we have different strategies of uh, investing in the aircraft space. Um, and uh, as, as you have noticed, we are quite active uh, in the debt across bank market and capital market uh, in terms of accessing uh, leverage for, uh, for these managed assets. Uh, on the advisory side, we provide advice uh, to a whole bunch of uh, different, um, uh, you know, bunch of different themes, uh, including OEM order book placement for airlines, or uh, airline restructuring, uh, freighter conversion, um, and uh, even, uh, you know, support for creditors when they go through bankruptcy and they have exposures into less source to airlines. Um, so uh, that uh, is clearly something which has grown quite significantly since pandemic, and it's uh, uh, it's it's been a very good complement to our asset management business. So those are the two main streams of business, and we are uh, uh, based out of uh, uh, you know we got two offices in Asia, uh, in Japan, and in Hong Kong, and based out of uh, uh, London, Ireland. Uh, and, and US. That's great. Thanks, Rampi. A real breadth of uh, activity across the aviation market there. And maybe focusing on the airline side for a moment, can, can you talk to us about what you've seen evolve over the course of 2022 in relation to kind of airline performance? Where you're kind of seeing opportunities in the market? So I think it's been by and large, uh, uh, as I reflect on the entire year, it's by and large a very good story for airlines in as much as uh, very strong recovery uh, in domestic, um, uh, you know, uh, domestic traffic across regions except China. Uh, and uh, the international uh, traffic has been lagging behind. Uh, and I would expect that that, you know, it's, it's, it's not been helped by certain number of macroeconomic factors which have, been, which have impacted which we'd seen the impact during the course of this year. Uh, but we'd expect that to kind of recover to pre-pandemic levels in you know, probably 2024, maybe 2025, around that, those timeframe. 
so I think the uh, where it's positive uh, for airlines uh, is you know clearly the performance of performance in this year is going to be much better than last year, uh, and uh, some of the stronger airlines will probably get become profitable this year, or surely profitable next year. So as the overall industry, it's been uh, it's been a good performance. Um, the the headwinds which you see are clearly the macroeconomic recessionary trends, inflationary trends, and how they impact airlines. Um, and uh, I guess there is uh, another trend which, which uh, uh, you know, it's difficult to kind of put a number to it is, is the work from anywhere, uh, you know, uh, uh, trend which is seen across uh, many markets where people are, uh, have more flexibility in terms of traveling and working rather than the very strict regimen that you had pre-pandemic of, of taking certain days off and, uh, you know, people worked, but it was clearly days off versus uh, days, days working in business. So I think that will uh, improve, uh, that will increase travel requirements and, uh, you know, flight requirements. And, and then on the opportunity side, Ramki, so as you say, slightly fragmented market with, with kind of recoveries happening at different paces and different geographies. As, as you are looking out on the opportunity side, where, where are you focused on looking out kind of into next year for you know, potential growth? So I think the, uh, the opportunities, so, so first of all, the laggard, if I look at various regions of Asia Pacific uh, and uh, in many respects, most of the economies are opening up uh, our travel uh, and, you know, we have to wait and see, uh, you know, clearly there's some good, uh, good signals in the last few days in terms of what's happening in China uh, uh, with respect to the zero COVID policy, but we need to see how that uh, plays itself out in the, in the first quarter of next year. Um, but if I look at some of the geographies in Asia Pacific, there's a very strong, uh, you know, bounce back on travel as it has been in, in, the, uh, in the previous quarters, if I see, uh, you know, in the US and Europe. Uh, once we have uh, that, I think what you'll see is many of the stored aircraft coming back uh, and with the supply chain issues which the OEMs have, uh, I think there's going to be opportunities in terms of air aircraft deployment and stronger lease rentals uh, moving to 23, 24 uh, before the OEM um, uh, production uh, catches up and starts delivering those aircraft. Uh, so uh, then we, I think what, how we think about the businesses, uh, once you looked at the macro, then we start looking at the micro, which is both specific regions as also specific aircraft types. Uh, you know, impact on cargo, impact on belly cargo uh, and conversion program, as well as older aircraft versus newer aircraft fuel, et cetera, to then uh, devise the strategies to which, which aircraft you want to stay invest, invested in, which aircraft you want to invest in, which one, which you want to divest from. Yeah, and you might come on to that, that free focus uh, in a little bit. Can you, you mentioned the kind of macroeconomic and kind of geopolitical challenges that, that we have and we're arguably in, in a time of uncertainty that we haven't seen in a long period coming out of where we were from COVID. But for honing in maybe on the interest rate environment, which we kind of, I'd say when we spoke this time last year, would have said, yep, yeah, it's going to rise. But maybe maybe the pace at which it's risen and the volatility 
has created a lot of challenges in the market. Can you talk to us about your perspectives and what, what that has meant for your business and just where you think that might move over the course of next year? So uh, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, if you, if you just reflect upon the, the sharp rise, it's quite unprecedented. And we are at interest rate levels, which you probably didn't see for the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, so I think there is a, a, a time period for getting used to this different interest rate regime where we are, uh, where we need to see what kind of liability structures and liability strategies we need to have. Um, what we saw, uh, so moving from airlines to the lesser space, what we saw in the second half of this year is, uh, you know, the tra trading activity was come down quite significantly because uh, you you have the same assets with the same cash flows, but uh, you your discounting rate has gone up. So essentially, you can pay a lot less for those aircraft. Um, so I think the uh, the if, if, if you think about how we started this year, uh, there was expectation for interest rate to increase, but liability, you know, liquidity was not a concern and you were still looking at very high leverage you could potentially get on the base of cash flows. But as we progressed in the year, uh, you know, that's changed quite dramatically in terms of what kind of leverage you can get, uh, what access do you have, you have to capital markets, um, uh, what access you have to uh, various other markets, including the non-traditional markets, which were, uh, you know, in the beginning of the year, non-traditional market strategy was looking at a CLO kind of an exit in, or refinancing of, of, uh, of the debt they write they're in their books, which, which uh, is something which they need to reevaluate with the new interest rate regime which we have. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a fairly, uh, you know, large shift in the market. Um, and I think as I, reflect upon how various lessors report and talk about their books and asset managers talk about their book. Uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on the asset side. And I think what you'd see uh, coming, going into 2023 is there's going to be a lot of focus on the liability side in terms of what liability structures you have. Uh, and when they talk about assets, they will have to talk about asset uh, uh, in the context of liability, in the context of what impact uh, asset value is going to have because of, of, of the changes in the liability strategies and liability cost. Do you think then we have the potential to maybe see on the aviation finance and leasing side a little bit more distress, right? If you say, as you say, it comes down to your your funding mix versus your asset income, but the, you know, based on what you're saying, there, there is that potential that if you haven't got your balance right, you could, you could have some players having some issues. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, uh, you know, um, if you think about uh, something as uh, significant as uh, borrowing at, you know, circa 2% to borrowing at 6%, so you're talking about, and that's if that's 70% of your cost, you're, uh, you, you're looking at your rate average cost of capital going up by 3% or thereabouts. Uh, so I think that that uh, is going to... Um, have impact on certain players who would, uh, you know, it's, it's question. I think first and foremost, the very standard, very simple question is how's the asset liability mismatch and how they are they managing that. Uh, the players who are able to manage that very well, I think that that would be fine. But equally, I think uh, you have a couple of 
uh, factors which might lead uh, you know, players to relook at their capital and the capital they have deployed. And that will be driven by what's the weighted average cost of capital, what, what, what's the uh, access to the new liability when, the, when it has to come up for refinancing. Um, and I think that would lead to uh, potentially uh, people exiting, but equally, I think on the other hand, uh, if you are not able to get the same values when you trade aircraft out as you did previously because of a low interest rate regime and high LTVs, those cash flows could support. Um, so essentially, lease encumbered values come down, right? So uh, you, you're going to have uh, probably less trading profit potentially, and uh, uh, and and uh, you know ways in which people need to see how they uh, lay off risk on their balance sheet. You know, in a in a decreasing interest rate environment, that was an easy process to do. While 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 in this environment, I think it's going to be more tricky for uh, for people to navigate through the, those uh, those solutions. And, and you, you referenced just on the debt side, the capital markets, and an area Airborne has played in and continues to play in is around aviation ABS. Um, obviously, a market we probably saw come back quicker post-COVID, but a sentiment-driven market. So we had the Russian challenge, followed by the rate environment. Can you talk to us about your perspectives on where that market currently sits? And again, where you see it evolving over the next 12 months? I think they, um, there are two aspects to the market as because we've been very actively speaking to our existing uh, you know, investor clients has also been talking to a number of participants, uh, both uh, investors as well as the banks who give us access to those participants. Uh, and uh, what I'd say is that uh, there is clearly uh, uh, lesser liquidity and uh, more relative value uh, amongst the smaller players in this market in other uh, ABS asset classes as compared to exot you know, the esoteric ABS, which aviation is part of. Uh, so it's getting crowded out in terms of a you know, a public ABS, uh, because you're you're ultimately your pricing is driven by the last dollar which comes in, uh, and the smaller players who who, who can uh, come in with that last dollar. Uh, however, if I look at the larger players in the market, I think they do have intrinsic appetite, uh, and uh, uh, they uh, have the ability to be selective and picky in terms of what kind of transactions they. You know, look at, uh, and I the theme which keeps coming back to me every time I speak to those investors is broadly falls into two two specific themes: what's the quality of assets and what's the quality of the servicer. Uh, and I think uh, in the quality of assets, uh, what I've seen is there was probably a view pre-COVID that the uh, size of the servicer. Uh, can uh, you know is more important than the quality of assets? I think COVID has uh, has driven home the point that quality of assets is uh, as important, if not more important, than the uh, in in the uh, the quality of the servicer. And I think the second thing which which I see emerging from this is it's more the quality of the servicer rather than the quantity the servicer has. Uh, it, it's it's uh, uh, it's uh, you know. Uh, it's it's uh, 
clearly size is important, helps people kind of find various solutions, but I think it's more quality versus quantity. And those are the two themes. So asset quality and the service quality. And if you get that right and you have a good story to tell, then uh, there is capital available. And the types of capital that, that's available around key, interesting, I know you said at the outset, you've been, you know, U.S. private equity, a lot of focus in that area, um, and you've also been on the Japanese side, and we know Japan has a very long and storied history in investing into aviation finance. Can you talk to us if you've seen any themes around the nature of investors that, that have shown interest? Um, and is it you know the similar categories of investors, but maybe the names are changing, or have you seen any interesting trends kind of you know, post-pandemic in the nature of investors? So I think we are, uh, you know, in a, for, a, if I think about for a decade, we've been in a transitional phase of uh, moving from very large institutions owning uh, leasing companies uh, to a market which is more, uh, uh, if you, more, uh, uh, more diverse, if you like, with multiple investors, the different investor strategies, passive and active investor strategy, investors owning the intellectual capital and the team around it, or investors actually outsourcing it. So that's what's probably have, if you if you think about the last 10 years, that's probably led to the steep growth in asset, manage, asset management models, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, BBAM's growth or Carlyle or Castle Lake's growth. Uh, and clearly, uh, in our in my different roles, we've been a benefactor of that kind of growth that you've seen with various new investors coming in. So I see that trend continuing. Um, uh, in in the overarching sense, that trend continuing because uh, as uh, people are looking for a differentiated investment strategy um, and they're looking for a quasi-credit place, aviation and aircraft uh, investing lends itself very well to that. And I see that continuing both in US as well as in uh, in in Japan. And I can anecdotally tell you that you know my conversations 10, 15 years back meeting investors, whether in Europe or US, more in Europe, uh, in UK, for example, uh, you know most of them won't take a call if I said you know talk about aviation investing, and you know some of the conversation led to uh, you know private jets and uh, and you know, more exotic topics rather than really investing into aircraft. So I think that that's changed quite a lot. COVID uh, is continuing to kind of make that change as we, as people, you know, first of all, they see the impact of COVID and get themselves comfortable about how opportunities are, pre, you know, present itself post-COVID. Um, so uh, in terms of, uh, the kind of discussions we are having across these various investors are very, very different. Very different, you know, cost of capital they are looking to address, if you like, and returns they're looking to obtain. Uh, different, uh, you know, risk expectations as they have, you know, risk appetite as they have. Um, and uh, so we have discussions amongst investors from, you know, super special situation, uh, naked white body kind of, uh, investment thesis to uh, run of the mill, uh, tier one, uh, you know, NEOs and maxes uh, on these. So I think uh, what we're seeing emerging uh, 
in a continuum with probably dislocation because of COVID is, is those themes emerging uh, and it's not one size fits all. And can I probe a little bit on the Japan side? How challenging has the US dollar movement been to that market? Uh, look, I think the it has been uh, challenging. Uh, it is ob obviously has also presented some opportunities where people could exit some of their uh, assets uh, and get a lot more Japanese sent to the US dollar. Uh, what investors are buying, uh, you know, by far looking for is some kind of a, a visibility in terms of where, uh, you know, is, is the, where the uh, exchange rate is going to settle and when the volatility will decrease. Having said that, uh, you know, many investors see US dollar, US dollar investment as a key part of their portfolio. Uh, and so from that perspective, we, you know, we, uh, Announced the first close of our fund in Japan, where uh, we had we have some uh, strong anchor investors who have invested into the fund, uh, and looking, we're talking, uh, working towards the second close probably in, in Q1 of next year. So from that perspective, I think we do see uh, a, a clearly large question in their mind, but the investment activity is not entirely stalled. I think if if uh, as we see the interest rate increases, uh, you know, taper out, I think the, the investment climate in Japan would improve because I think people would have visibility uh, in terms of what they think the long-term exchange rates will be. And just more broadly on the debt market for a moment, if you know, we've spoken to kind of ABS, your, your perspectives on the rest of the debt market, both traditional, you know, you know, bank lenders, of which you were one in your former life, um, and just some of the alternative lenders that we've seen emerge, typically, you know, U.S. private equity backed so far. Can I get your thoughts on, on how those elements of the markets are operating and how important they are? So I, I think, that, you know, if I look at a two-year uh, view as, you know, as we entered pandemic and we realized how, uh, how major how major impact it's having in aviation? Uh, I think it's probably fair to say that people expected the debt players to be impacted a lot more than they have been impacted. And I think there are a few factors which the traditional debt players to be impacted more. The few factors to it in the sense that uh, we saw uh, non-traditional players actually uh, taking on uh, some of the positions of the debt players at to uh, obviously. Uh, some of them were looking at, uh, you know, taking on the naked asset at a cheaper price, but uh, exiting the debt there. So that market has been quite efficient from that perspective. Help uh, uh, churn capital, uh, ensure the problem assets, and the uh, you know is is uh, is kept uh, to uh, you know the, the solutions to the problem assets that they had at that point in time, and and those solutions were not too expensive. Uh, so. When anecdotally speak to some of the uh, you know traditional uh, lenders into the space, uh, they I hear many of them talking about wanting to you know that their book has come come down and they need to kind of increase and build the book up. Uh, but clearly they are also impacted by the volatility of because they are. Uh, 
you know, most of these traditional players are based in Europe, Japan, uh, and, and non-US, uh, you know, uh, areas. And so they have also been impacted by the, uh, uh, the exchange of volatility, the cost of funds for them. So I would expect that that, um, once the risk perception are across, you know, around the volatility of, uh, uh, of uh, the, the cost of funds, the own treasury cost of funds uh, settles down, I think they will come back quite strongly into lending. Uh, clearly they would have a, uh, you know, a new improved version of what they want to lend, how they want to lend in a new interest rate environment. Um, the non-traditional uh, debt players, uh, you know, were uh, very active uh, early on in this year. And I think they continue to be active and we speak to a number of them. Um, I still, uh, I think that there's probably a change in terms of how they thought about uh, life, uh, you know, beginning of the year, because I think there were lots of CLOs planned at that point in time on the back of aviation, aviation book with their right. Uh, that uh, needs to be reevaluated as to whether that would work once interest rates goes down and in terms of how they manage interest rate risk. Uh, uh, but clearly, they they provide. They, my hope is they provide a solution at a different price point, a different risk category, different price point. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's 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 if you like a continuity continuity of the spectrum of fairly low risk senior debt to more exotic senior debt, uh, similar to what uh, you know in my previous organization we used to write. So I think that's there's going to be a bunch of players who do that. Uh, so that. Um, uh, you know, it's it's good it's good signs the market as you as you can think about different liability solutions, especially people like us who are not looking at balance sheet solutions but looking at non-recourse solutions for our various uh, various uh, funds or assets we manage. And maybe looking at the the wider leasing market, can I get your perspective on? whether the importance of leasing as a financing tool has fundamentally increased post-COVID. You know, we've seen anecdotally a deepening of that relationship between you know, lessors and airlines as they help them uh, through the, the cash flow challenges that they uh, at the outset and continue to have during the pandemic. Um, and we've seen that 50% threshold breached in terms of number of aircraft and certainly in terms of value of aircraft. Um, can I get your perspectives on, is that a sustainable shift and a trend that will continue? Or as airlines balance sheets recovers, are, are we more likely to see it recede slightly? I think it's, uh, you know, it's in terms of uh, uh, what has clearly come out of pandemic is, uh, you know, there is a lot more of less capital available for, um, for narrow body assets and a lot less for wide body assets. Uh, so that's one. Driver. The second driver, as you said, is as the balance sheets improve. I think airlines would want to have some balance sheet, you know, some assets in the balance sheet. It's traditional thinking to have assets in the balance sheet. Having said that, a number of uh, um, uh, you know LCCs were extremely profitable and probably recovered much faster than the uh, more mainline uh, network carriers. Are quite happy with having uh, disproportionate sized lessor book rather than having. Book, as asset on their balance sheet, and clearly they have narrow bodies, which which kind of helps, and you know, uh, it's, it's it's in the sweet spot for the lesser market. So I don't necessarily see uh, uh, a big trend either way. 
but I think I've always been a big uh, proponent of the fact that uh, you know lessor capital cost, uh, uh, well-run lessor capital costs, and you know, and the asset manager capital cost is is going to be lower than uh, an airline's cost of capital uh, in terms of just the risk capital, the risk risk of the business, the beta of the business are different, and so all things being equal. There is, there is a strong argument for outsourcing of uh, that capital uh, solution to less source for To get your thoughts then, Ramki, one of the themes as we've been undertaking these interviews has been about probably the increased importance of scale uh, in, in terms of kind of, you know, and maybe that's for the very large players in accessing, you know, good priced order books and accessing the various you know, liability tools that you talked about on the debt side. When you think about scale as an asset manager, um, can I get your perspectives on that and, and how you play, you know, probably in a slightly different place, clearly, to the very large balance sheet lessors, but does scale play the same level of importance in the asset manager context? Look, I think there has to, you know, as a business, we have always invested uh, to be uh, to be able to manage a lot more aircraft than you managed. I think it, it is, uh, you know, you, uh, and the reason for that is you, you know, you can't go sell a story to investor to tell them that please give us a mandate and then I'll get manpower to be able to manage your assets. So we, we, we have, uh, we see intellectual capital as the, as, as our main asset base, if you like. And so, and we have invested in that. Um, but as I look at M&A activity, either as asset manager or, or as a lessor, you know, the key really has been, and we've done our own uh, bunch of M&A uh, activity, right? So the key really is what is the, what's the problem I'm solving or what is, this, what is, what is the, uh, you know, benefit which I'm getting from, from doing the M&A activity. And I've seen, if I look at all the lessor M&A activity, either falls in the category of, uh, willing seller who wants to uh, get the capital back so that they can redeploy into certain other areas there which they feel more comfortable, more core, um, uh, or or better returns. And this could be, uh, you know, uh, investors into my funds, investors, uh, or it could be investors who own, uh, you know, aviation companies, if you like. Uh, and the second aspect is uh, the driver for M&A activity is growth. How can I achieve uh, uh, access to, uh, you know, access to order book or how can I achieve growth, faster growth in the organic growth I can achieve. Um, interestingly, what I've not seen uh, and uh, is after any M&A activity, unlike other industry to say, these are the synergy benefits and this is the cost savings. So, I've not, uh, you know, this not to say that they, they might not be drivers, but what I've publicly seen are these two drivers. So when I think about asset management, M&A activity, I think it's, it's around the same in terms of what's the benefit which I'm getting. Um, so size is, is good, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a good thing to talk about and uh, a good ego point, but ultimately, I guess it's a question of, uh, what's what's the value of the company and what am I, uh, you know, really getting out of an M&A activity? And that's how we think about it. Um, I think uh, the stage which we are in, uh, we are 
uh, we see additional uh, you know uh, inorganic growth of portfolio of assets uh, you know it's uh, uh, which is is quite beneficial for us because we are still at a stage where we probably you know would want to be um, uh, you know 100 plus aircraft under management um, you know in the next uh, you know next couple of years or so so I think that's that's that uh, that is quite an important aspect for us and each time we do the calculation I think there's significant value improvement for us to do uh, to for do, do a trade as of that sort um, but ultimately I think uh, once we reach that stage the focus is really going to be uh, you know what's what's the value which is uh, which is creating by by picking more assets up yeah and, and on the asset side, Ramki, can you can you talk to us where your your focus has been on on what types of metal you view you know as as the most investable or the most attractive and and perhaps that's for different pockets of the investor classes that you deal with and maybe chat to us as well in in that context around just what you've seen in in relation to asset values you know we are in an inflationary environment have we seen that come through on the asset value side you know you know linking back probably to the OEM delays you referenced earlier sure so. Uh... I think uh, our central theme is to provide uh, investment, unique investment ideas, investment solutions to our uh, to uh, uh, to various investors we service, uh, while understanding their risk appetite, their return requirements. So we are that's more central theme to us than uh, you know. Uh, Pegging ourselves to a particular type of asset or type of you know age of asset or a type of asset, um, uh, and so I think we tend to work through the life cycle of the asset from that perspective. So we we have look we are looking at midlife asset for in certain situations. We're looking at non-leased assets. We're looking at leased long lease assets, etc. So I think we are more agnostic, uh, subject to. Uh, Obviously, the comfort that there is a compelling story to invest. There's a this is the right risk return trade off for the investor, and we uh, feel we have uh, the intellectual capital to manage that uh, investment on behalf of the investor. Briefly, can I ask you to touch on the cargo market? You referenced it earlier. Is it one where you see opportunity? We've obviously seen some would argue a step change post COVID with the e-commerce boom. But, but some of the recent data is a little bit more challenging on the cargo market. Just to get your thoughts, is that an area that interests you? And if so, how? So it, it is an area of uh, uh, great interest for us. We've, uh, you know, um, um, we've been uh, involved in uh, uh, advising clients in terms of cargo conversion, uh, involved with, uh, uh, you know, helping them book uh, the conversion positions looked at different asset types so it's, it's, as goes through the cargo conversion. So it's a uh, market which we've been uh, quite actively involved in, uh, more on the advisory side so far than the asset management side, but with, with uh, ambitions for the asset management side to be involved in that as well. Uh, so I think it's a couple of things in the cargo market. For, first of all, the cargo market is much smaller than the passenger market. Uh, and second, it's it's got a more... Um, visible and quick uh, and probably larger impact with 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 the economic activity so right now i think we are seeing the cargo market trends in terms of 
you know need for cargo aircraft or or, or the cargo rate starting to come down uh, quite a bit, uh, and that's driven by belly cargo coming back because a lot of this traffic was uh, supported by lack of belly cargo. So belly cargo coming back. Uh, clearly, there's a overarchingly larger theme in terms of e-commerce and how that's going to drive uh, cargo requirements or, or you know, in the market. So I think there's, uh, in, in the uh, short to medium term, there's probably going to be uh, pressures in the cargo market uh, with belly cargo coming back and uh, registry trends in many parts of the, parts of the world. Uh, but uh, overall, if I look at the longer term trend, I think quite bullish about the cargo market because of the, the, the e-commerce. I think that that's, uh, that's going to play itself out. Yeah, it's interesting. We kind of had some mixed views. It's funny enough, I think, over, over the course of the kind of conversations we're, we're having to, to those exact points, right, the, the positives and the negative side. Uh, Ramke, I'd like to thank you, as always, for your insights and wish you and Airborne Capital a very successful 2023. Thank you very much and thanks for lovely talking to you as always, Joe.